Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that these minutes would be profitable for our faith and that you would teach us strategies of purity and power and that the ripple effect of this moment would be for the sake of the nations and for the sake of our churches, for the sake of our families. Let nothing we do here be done in vain, I pray. Guide my mouth and my mind and my heart. Guard me from Satan and pride and fear and all forms of vain glory. And grant us an allegiance, even in this very moment, to your word, which is so powerful for tearing down what is exalted against you and for building up the hearts of your people. So come and do this and more, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since there are new folks among us, it might be good for me to take two or three minutes and try to sum up the last four sessions and show you the relationship that they have to where we're going to go in these four morning times. Um, Three passions I lifted up that are driving me. The passion for the supremacy of God. And by that, I wanted to stress that God's heart for God is the foundation of our heart for God and our heart for the nations. And so God has a supreme passion for his supremacy. Secondly is our passion for joy, and those two are not at odds because God is most glorified in us, most magnified in us, when we are most satisfied in Him. And third, a passion for holiness or love or Christ-likeness or purity of heart or radical obedience, however you want to describe it. And the first two yield the second one, that if your heart is satisfied in God, you do lead a life that is radically different. I call this life living by faith in future grace, and I define faith as a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. And I argued for that texts like John 6.35 and others, where Jesus beckons us to come. And he who believes will never thirst. So belief is a coming to Jesus to drink such that we are no longer craving what the world offers. And the reason that living by faith understood this way breaks the power of sin is because nobody sins out of duty. People sin because of the promises of happiness that sin makes. And the only way to break the power of the promises of sin is with the power of a superior promise or a superior satisfaction. Sin offers you a very short term, as it's called in Hebrews 11:26, a fleeting pleasure. The fleeting pleasures of sin. And when you find that promise compelling, sin is your master. And if you can break the power 
of the compelling promises of sin in your life, you will triumph over sin. And you break the power of the promises of sin by the power of superior promises, which I call future grace. And therefore, faith in future grace is the power whereby you get victory over sin, which means it's the key to holiness or radical obedience or love. And then we began to unfold yesterday at two o'clock practical instances of sin by which or which we can get victory over. And I want to just do a little more of that now. Then. I'm going to take a third of these, the third one we touch on, namely covetousness, and make it a stepping stone into the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to be in the book of Hebrews Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But you will find, and it's no accident, that the structure, the thought structure of the book of Hebrews is the same thing we've been looking at. Because I learned this structure of living by faith in future grace in large measure from the dynamic of the book of Hebrews. So that's the plan and the connection between where we've come from and and where we're going. So I want to take three more sins or temptations this morning and operate with them in view of how to triumph over them by faith in future grace. And the ones I want to work with this morning are lust, sexual lust, temptation. And secondly, bitterness and unforgiveness. And lastly, covetousness, and then move into the book of Hebrews from that jumping off place. So the reason for taking these sins is not necessarily that they're the biggest sins or the worst sins, but because... They are sample sins that everybody struggles with. And we need to just see how, if I've been on the right track with living by faith in future grace, you can get victory over these sins. And this has universal application for the Christian life, whether for missionaries or for ordinary saints in the churches at home. Because being a missionary doesn't change anything. It just changes the the forms or the place. Missionaries struggle with lust. Missionaries struggle with covetousness. Missionaries struggle with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. And missionaries come home because of sins. They don't come home because of anything magical on the mission field. Missions are destroyed because of sin. And so if we can get triumph in measure over some ordinary sins, it might be that we'd stay on the field and it might be that churches would flourish and it might be that people would come to Christ and churches would be planted more successfully than if we succumb to sin over and over again. In fact, I'll just mention right off the bat that one of the big concerns I have for the mission field is uh, videos. I'm just overwhelmed, frankly. I... Um, I had one of my staff come back from a year on the field. We we send a staff person overseas pretty much all the time, and and I give my associate staff, we give each other uh, years off. They're not really off. They kill them, really. 
uh, because we send them to the mission field and they serve in some capacity, teaching or as a chaplain at a at a camp or, or something and just leave us for a year, then come back and they and they enrich us because of that. But the stories they come back with are both wonderful and awful. And one of the awful stories is the bondage of missionaries to videos. And they're pretty corrupt videos. I mean, I I am real hard on my staff. I don't dictate what they can watch, but I'm in their face all the time about purity of heart and mind. Because we're going to be weak as a church if my staff are watching R-rated videos or really GP13 videos every other night with their kids. They're just going to be worldly. And... And uh, and they come back with the stories how these missionaries, they're tired, they're, they're discouraged, they're not accepted, they're not having the success they dreamed of, and they just kick back with these crummy videos that their worldly friends send them. And I just, when I hear about it and I look at what they watch, they say, how are they going to be mighty in the spirit, mighty? To defeat the devil when they're feeding on the stuff of the devil every night. How in the world is that going to happen? And so I just plead with you, if, if that's where you are, maybe what I do here would help you get some victory over that. So let's talk about sexual lust for a minute and temptation. What do you do with it? And let's just be as biblical as we can here. There are many strategies and you must learn strategies to fight because it is war. And Jesus made very clear that it's war. And he did it in the Sermon on the Mount with some pretty graphic illustrations, as you know. So let me begin. You know, when you're talking about faith and future grace for triumph over temptation, there's a negative side to it and a positive side to it. The positive side we've been stressing, namely believing promises. And I'll get to that in a minute with regard to this issue. But. Faith in future grace is also a thankfulness to God and a trust in the wisdom and goodness of God in the warnings he's given us. Not just the promises he's given us, but the warnings. Warnings are sort of the bottom side of promises. They're they're what will happen if you disbelieve promises. And so Jesus is real big on warnings. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you know that he says that if your eye He's talking about lust here. Causes you to sin. Pluck it out. For it is better with two eyes or one eye to go to heaven or to enter into life than with two eyes to go to hell. Now, everything about that word is offensive. It's offensive to talk about hell in relation to lust. I mean, we believe in eternal security, for goodness sakes. So don't talk to us like that. Don't, te- don't threaten us in this room with hell because of what we do with our eyes. We believe in eternal security, so don't talk to us that way. That's really the way a lot of people read the Sermon on the Mount in our churches. That can't apply to us. Can't apply to us. Don't threaten us with hell. Well, pastors and missionaries ought to threaten their people with hell if they live hellish lives. They ought to talk the way Jesus talks. Those who are born of God will take heed to the warnings, use them as means of grace, persevere in faith, and won't go to hell. They are eternally secure. 
And they bear witness to their eternal security by the fact that they have the spirit within them, enabling them to appropriate the warnings, use them to gouge out their eyes if they must, and stay on the narrow path which alone leads to life. There's a wide way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to life. If you stay on the narrow way, you get to heaven. If you leave the narrow way and apostatize, forsake the faith, embrace lust, you're a goner. And what you experienced when you were in the revival 50 years ago was not real. They went out from us because they were not of us. They would not have gone out had they been of us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. That's the way the New Testament handles eternal security. If you leave and you forsake and you're no longer a professing believer or no longer a, a real believer living like the devil, then you probably never were a believer. That's a little princess. I didn't mean to get off on that again. Except texts like this gouge out your eye. So one reason it's, it's offensive is because it talks about hell. Another reason it's offensive is because that's gory. What do you use, a screwdriver? I mean, you, you really must let the words of Jesus hit you here. This is gross. This is gory. This is horrible. If you don't in your battle with internet pornography and your battle with television slut mess and your battle with all kinds of stuff on billboards and movies and newspaper advertisements and, and Time magazine, if you don't skip some pages with a fear of your eye being gouged out or going to hell, you don't get it yet. You just don't get the nature of the battle and how serious it is. And many people just don't get how serious the battle is with lust. It's a light thing. Our whole culture makes light of it. Everything is sold with it. Sex and the way women dress and the way men act towards women and all these things are considered so light, so superficial, so insignificant. It takes a Jew today. What's her name? Who wrote the book on modesty? The new, the new book that everybody should look at for the sake of your daughters. Because our, our evangelical daughters, they just cluck their tongues when the word modesty is spoken about. And the way many women dress in our churches is absolutely ridiculous. It's just borrowed straight from the world. And they don't get it. They, I mean, most of these men and women who treat lust and sex so lightly they're not doing it out of any assault. They just don't get it. They're naive and they need help. And Jesus gives them help with words like, if your eye offend you, pluck it out. For it's better with one eye to enter into life than with two eyes to go to hell. There's a story. I don't know if you read this a few years ago. I put it in one of my books Somewhere is an illustration of a man in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, who was out in a logging camp and a tree fell on his leg and trapped him. And he was alone. He had a bulldozer. He was out moving stuff and he got out of the bulldozer and a tree tumbled over and trapped his leg and broke it. It's very severely compound fracture just below the knee. And he called and he called. He's bleeding severely. He said, I'm going to die. Perfectly conscious, able to handle himself. You know what he did? He took out his pocket knife and he cut off his leg. That's in the newspaper. He cut off his leg. He, he unlashed his boot 
lace, formed a tourniquet above his knee, tied as tight as he could, took the rough side of his pocket knife and cut his leg off below the knee. Got on the uh, um, bulldozer, drove himself to his pickup truck, which was a straight shift, drove a straight shift pickup truck to a farmhouse, stumbled out of it, almost dead, bleeding, and lived to tell about it. Now, the reason that story is important is for one reason. You know why he cut off his leg? He wanted to live. You want to live? Gouge out your eye. Another warning comes from 1 Peter 2.11. Abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. War. We're in a war. Most people, we have such a jolly view of Christianity today. There's so few people that feel the mega weight of the war that we're in. Just to save our souls. There are fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls. And the enemy... Our own flesh, the devil, the world are warring to destroy us, our souls, through all kinds of visual temptation. Another warning, Luke 8.14 in the parable of the soils. The third soil, that's the biggie for us in America. That's the biggie. We are the third soil generation, country. Era. It's the soil of the thorns, and in Luke, they are called these, these, these thorns that grow up around the world and begin to grab us and choke our life and kill us are called two things, the anxieties of this age and the pleasures of life. The pleasures of life. Luke 8, 14. What kills Christians in America? The pleasures of life. And one of the massive pleasures from the head to the groin to the bottom of your feet is sexual pleasure. And it is killing people. And the more private it becomes with the Internet, the more insidious the destruction becomes. Once you had to be so bold to get to pornography, to venture into some peep show or some bookstore or some X-rated movie, and then, lo and behold, Satan, under the providence of God, because it can be turned for good as well, invents videos. You could take them home, but you had to kind of get your TV out and set it up and turn it on. And the children or the wife could walk in unless you get up in the middle of the night to do it. And and then along comes the Internet. Anywhere, anytime. And now you don't even need to be plugged in. And you can have it of the most wild kind. And so it all boils down to your heart, doesn't it?
No outward constraints anymore. Nobody watching but God. And you're concerned that you not be choked to death. Do you want to die? Watch out for these thorns. Here's a fourth warning text which moves into a positive strategy. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's ponder that positive statement for a moment. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, putting to death something, you need a weapon. Unless you're going to choke them, punch them hard enough. But it says by the Spirit. So you tell me what you think the weapon is. The sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Put, so when he says in Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And if you say, okay, but the Spirit is God. I don't wield the Holy Spirit. He wields me. I'm an instrument of Him. What do you mean, uh, put to death by the Spirit? I, to do something by something, I need, a, I need an instrument in my hand. And, and God says, well, all right. How about the sword of the Spirit? So when he says, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, he probably means avail yourself of the power and the instrumentality of the Spirit, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you're going to slay the temptation with a sword in your hand. The sword in your hand is going to be the Word of God. So you stock your arsenal your mind and your heart, full of daggers from the Word of God. And when Satan or the flesh or the world approaches you with a temptation, you reach and you draw quickly. I tell you, here's my read on this. I think you've got a window of about five seconds, not much longer. Why are the women nodding their head and not the men? What do you know about this? Men, why aren't you nodding your head? Is it three? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to mislead you. Don't want to tempt you. But I think I've got a window of about five seconds. If the image appears somewhere, if the thought enters my mind, I've got about five seconds or I'm a lost. I'm a, it's a lost cause. And so within those five seconds, I do two things. I immediately say, either out loud if I'm alone, or in my head if I'm not, no! No! To the thought, to the image, to the devil, to whatever, no! And then I reach for a sword. And it may be a word, it may be an image of the cross. I'll give you a few of the, of the texts on the positive side here. We need positive you see, I grew up, I, I failed in the lust thing a long time as a teenager, as most guys do. Fall prey to masturbation, fantasies. For years from, say, 13 to whatever, you begin to learn how to do the strategy and get some triumph. 
And one of the big failures was the no by itself, out of a guilty conscience, doesn't work. It's not enough. You have to put in the place of a powerful image or a powerful promise. Come on, come on, this is going to feel really good. Maybe not more than five minutes, but it's going to feel really good. Come on, come on, yield to this fantasy. Yield to this. Flip the pages, hit the buttons, do whatever you have to do. This is going to feel really good. Now, that's a promise held out. The only way to defeat this thing is with the power of a superior image, a superior pleasure, a superior promise. I didn't realize that as a teenager. I just didn't get it. I didn't have the spiritual categories. I didn't have the wherewithal. And I've devoted my life for about the last 30 years trying to figure the positive side of Christian hedonism out. Because the negative never worked. It never produced holiness. It never produced joy that triumphed over the pleasures of sin. But now I think I'm getting it. And so behind the no, within the first five seconds that you've got to win here, comes some words or some images over against the images. And sometimes they need to be very rough, gross images of Christ on the cross. This is a very effective one for me. I'll picture Jesus on the cross screaming. I just let his voice scream with pain in my mind and watch him heave up and down as his lacerated back goes up and down on the cross. And I see the flesh rending in his feet and his hands and, and I see the, these awful thorns poking in his head and, and he has to turn and one of them goes in a little deeper and he, and I just let that grip me and I say, Titus, he offered himself in order to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. He did that for my purity. If I yield here in the next five seconds, I stab him with a sword. Can't do that. This was for me. You got to fight like that with your mind. The Bible is constantly telling you to direct your mind somewhere. Direct your mind to heaven. Direct your mind to Jesus. Direct your mind to the Bible. You can do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the body with the Spirit. And so you take the Word and you thrust it forth like a triumphant. And then you do it over and over. I used to think this would never work. You know why I would say never work? Because it's say, I would say to myself, it's like saying, don't think of white elephants, don't think of white elephants, don't think of white elephants, don't think of white elephants. And every time you say, don't think of white elephants, you're saying white elephants and it's still there. So how can you get rid of it by saying, don't think of white elephants? And that's the mistake of the negative. The negative. You can't, you can't defeat lust negatively. You cannot defeat lust with thou shalt not lust. That simply gets you started. Because stop, stop, fantasy go away, fantasy go away, fantasy go away. It's always there in the very word. You must, and this is a miracle of the spirit when this happens, but you have a hand in this. You must set your mind on another thing. And say that thing, see that thing, this word of God, this image, over and over until God has freed you. And I'll tell you, 
after many years, it works. It works. You can have freedom. As one who's known bondage and now knows great freedom, it works. I'll give an illustration. I mean, just real practical. How I do this. I'm out cutting the grass last Thursday. When I cut the grass Thursday, no. Noel told me last week that behind our garage, we live in the inner city. You gotta understand this now. There's a couple having oral sex. She calls the police. The police come get them, put them in a the car, take them away as a prostitute. She shouldn't have told me that properly. Because this is in my mind now. That behind my garage, the people do this sort of thing. I'm out cutting the grass, and I, I push the lawnmower by the garage, and that thought comes into my mind. Just a thought. Nobody's there. I've got five seconds before I begin to put myself there watching that. I got five seconds, and I know I'm messing you up right now. I'm causing big time trouble. This is a huge risk, what I'm doing right now, because you're going to have to deal with this all day long today. Hmm. But if I've succeeded, you'll get victory over this. So at that moment, I say to that thought, no. And then I begin to think another thought. You know, it took me about 18 passes of the lawnmower up, down, up, down before that was completely Gone. But I wouldn't let go of the positive thought. I just wouldn't let it go. I held on to it. I kept saying it to myself over and over again, the positive promise. I can't remember right now which one I used. But it's, if you let it go, you'll sink right back into the default fantasy, the default thought. So learn to use positive promises. Now, here's the underlying text. If you need a theological foundation for living by faith in future grace with regard to lust, it comes from 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. It goes like this. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So power comes through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now watch. By which may escape from precious and very great promises. Couldn't be clearer, could it? That is what I mean by living by faith in future grace, getting promises. So, for example, I say, the Lord God is a sun and shield. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I just say it over and over again. Yes, I'm going to deny myself the short-term pleasure, but God says no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Therefore, every good thing that God can conceive for me is mine if I walk with God here. And I I preach that to myself over and over again and believe that he is going to give me every good thing as I walk uprightly with him. And I put to death the deeds of the body with that sword of the spirit. Or another one would be Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There comes a point in your Christian life 
where you want to see God so badly, you will gouge out your eye so that no other seeing will keep you from it. Do you want to see God, men, women, so badly that when another sight begins to contaminate your capacity to see Him and enjoy Him and delight in Him and revel in Him, you will do anything, including gouge out your eye, so as not to see what would blind you to the beauty of God. I think it was long about when I was maybe 18 or 19 and 20, right in there, these things were awakening to me as I began to have spiritual tastes and capacities for pleasures higher than groin pleasures. It was the capacity to look at a sunset, to look at a woman as a human being who might one day be a wife or to look at my mother, or to look at a little child, or to look at a poem, or to look at Christ on the cross, or to look at heaven, and to begin to feel spiritual delights and pleasures in these things that were being destroyed day after day through fantasies and masturbation. And I began to say to myself, I want those things. I want to see those things. I don't know how many of you remember about Mm. What is it? Fifteen? No, closer to twenty years ago now. In the first issues of Leadership Magazine, an article called "The Anatomy of Lust." How many remember that article? One or two, three, four, half a dozen. Powerful testimony, anonymously, of a man in the bondage to lust and how he got free after about twelve years of bondage. And the answer was he saw purity. In a novel by Francois Mariac called, I think, The Red and the Black. And he fell in love with purity and realized he was destroying himself and wanted it so badly. Well, I didn't mean to preach the whole time this morning on lust, but I did. So in 10 minutes, we'll see what else we can do here. That's enough. I, I, I didn't even give you all of that page. That's one page, and I didn't even give you those three texts at the bottom, I'll say in one word, those lusts are lusts of deceit. Ephesians 4.22, 1 Peter 1.14, 1 Thessalonians 4.5. The promises of lust are lies. They're deceitful. They're called lusts of deceit. Deceit. Lusts which you had in your former ignorance. Peter says. So how do you how do you feel being ignorant, guys? How do you feel being deceived by your own desires? Do you feel big, noble, strong, courageous, free, venturesome by being a dupe? No, you don't. You feel like a dog in heat. Sex. Put you aside. Bitterness and unforgiveness. How shall we battle these things? They probably destroy more of us than sex do. Does. Um, we talked about loving our enemy. So we maybe don't need to say too much about this. Except let me add one thing. Holding grudges is a, is a deadly thing. It'll kill you. It'll kill your life. It'll 
send you to hell because Jesus says, if you don't forgive those who forgive you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. You become a a chronically unforgiving, grudge-holding, bitter person. You will so shrivel up on the inside that you will no longer be capable of delighting in the forgiveness of God in your life. And if you can't delight in the forgiveness of God in your life, you're not forgiven. You never tasted it. That's the point of Luke 7, I think. And so being a a, a grudge-holding person is deadly. It's just as deadly as lust. And you need to fight it with all your might. I've talked about how you can fight it by faith in a great reward. But now I want to add one more little thing. One of the hardest things about letting go of a great sin against you in the past, say a father who abused you, say you're a woman in the crowd here, and there are no doubt many in the crowd this side whose fathers either sexually or some other way terribly abused you. Or it might be that there was tragic divorce in your background, and owing to no really serious fault of your own, your spouse simply forsook the faith or fell in love with another person, or just utterly betrayed you. Or you can list your own horrible experience by which you were really wronged. You were really wronged. Now, how do you handle that forever? You just go seething on and on and on and on, year after year. How can you lay that down? And one of the big obstacles to laying it down, laying it aside, and not letting it destroy you is that there's a real sense of justice in the world. Justice should be done, and it hasn't been done. And it comes back to you again and again. Justice hasn't been done. He never got what was coming to him. She never got what was coming to her. She's got it real good, and my life is one mess. And this is absolutely unjust. And it is. And that's what makes it so hard to let it go. So what do you do when it's really unjust and they haven't got what's coming to them? You know what the Bible says about that? They're going to get what's coming to them. You think that's a Christian motive to be free from anger? You know who used it? Jesus. I'll read you the text. It's uh, 1 Peter 2. 22 to 23, he committed no sin, no guile was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Well, what did he do with all that injustice coming against him? Answer, he handed over to him who judges justly. Yes, he did pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, he did. But whether they would receive that and repent and be saved, that's not said. What is said is, Father, I am not going to take vengeance right now. I'm not going to pull myself off the cross like I could and slay all these enemies who are doing me this grave injustice. I'm going to stay right here and I turn judgment over to you. He handed over to him who judges justly. Some of the versions add little things in italics there, like he handed himself over. No, uh-uh. He handed over his cause, his this great injustice. He handed the whole thing over to him who judges 
justly. Now, if you say, well, should we copy him in that? We certainly should, because Romans 12 commands us to. Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Now, think about that. What is he saying? Don't avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a promise. I will repay. You feed your enemy. You love your enemy. And if your enemy stays an enemy, hardens his heart against your compassion, I will take care of that. Which means we don't have to bear the burden of being the judge of the universe. We can relax that the abusing father or the offensive husband or the enemy on the mission field or whoever who year after year scorns our tenders of mercy and forgiveness will be dealt with justly. This hit me in the summer of 1971 like a ton of bricks. Sitting in Noel's mom's and dad's garage port, or whatever they call it, the patio, swinging on a swing, reading The Nature of True Virtue by Jonathan Edwards. That in the universe there is much evil and injustice. God is a God of justice, and he is sovereign. Sometimes it is Christians who hurt us, and sometimes it is unbelievers who hurt us. Sometimes those Christians will die having never made it right. Live at peace with all men in as much as it lies within you, and sometimes it doesn't lie within you. You do what you can, you can't make peace. And some are unbelievers, and they die in unbelief. And the thought hit me, okay, we got two problems here. we got unbelievers... And we got believers and unsatisfied injustices against me or against somebody. And I feel offended by the fact that justice has not yet been done and they've died. And these two truths came to me out of the word. So clear now. Either the injustice will be settled in hell for unbelievers. Or. For believers, it will have been settled on the cross. Which meant for me that when I thought about believers who have offended me and hurt me and disappointed me and never seemed to make it right. I am offending Christ not to forgive them. I am belittling the cross not to forgive them. Because when Christ died, if this is a big if, and you don't have to decide this if, God does. If they are Christians, he bore it. He bore it. That's part of the weight, crushing him down. What they did to you crushed him. He bore it. It hasn't been treated lightly. It hasn't been swept under the rug of the universe. It killed him. That's big. Don't belittle that. Jesus bore it. And if they turn out not to be Christians, but fake Christians, they pay forever. And you don't need to add to that payment one minute of vengeance. We are the freest of all people from revenge. 
You do not need to settle accounts with those who have hurt you so badly. You don't need to take them to court. 1 Corinthians 6. You don't need to have the last word in argument. Give it up to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay either in the execution of my son because I love them or in their eternal execution in hell because they never received my offers of forgiveness. So, we battle against bitterness and unforgiveness by faith in the future grace of our deliverance from our enemies as we go to heaven and are covered by the blood of Jesus and they are sentenced to everlasting condemnation. And we trust God's justice in the future. And my time is up for this morning. So sorry, I wasn't able to make the transition into Hebrews. I'll make it tomorrow morning and then we'll take up three passages in Hebrews which will unpack, I think, or provide maybe more biblical foundation for this kind of life called living by faith in future grace. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for the spirit and for the promise of everlasting life and for the cross that bought it all for us and for the terrible outcome of hell by which your justice will be vindicated among all those who have spurned the offers of grace. And I pray that we would appropriate the positive and appropriate the negative and make war on all temptation and defeat the devil and defeat sin in our lives and so live triumphantly for the cause of Christ and model his humility and model his Purity and model his radical obedience and his self-sacrificing love even for his enemies. This is what we want for those who are going to be away from us on the mission field and those of us who are going to be fighting the fight and holding the ropes here at home. In Jesus' name I pray.